Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're hanging out with some friends and putting back a few drinks. A few becomes a few too many. As the evening comes to an end and people start to head out, you think of calling for a ride. Nah, you live nearby. You can make it home, okay? It's no big deal. What are the odds you'll get pulled over anyway? And even so, what's the worst that could happen? Your insurance goes up? You lose your license? You lose your job? You total your car? You kill someone? Everyone knows about the risks of driving drunk. The results are tragic and often deadly. However, that still doesn't stop everyone from getting behind the wheel while under the influence. That's why police officers are out there right now looking for impaired drivers on our roads to save lives. So, if you think you're okay to drive after a few drinks, think again. Play it safe and plan ahead to get a ride. It only takes one mistake to change your life or someone else's forever. Drive sober or get pulled over. This Christmas, feel joy, gift joy, and send them joy with the perfect gift at Arnott's. Explore an endless array of gifting that will bring joy to everyone on your list. Shop Irish at the Christmas market, support emerging new businesses with Pitch 22, or find something extra special from one of our world-class brands. Shop in-store and online at arnott's.ie. Brandon Martin had lost his chance at a baseball career, and his life was spiraling out of control. Instead of being kicked out of his parents' house, he decided to destroy everything that he thought was threatening his life. This is Monsters. Brandon Martin was born on August 24, 1993, and grew up in Corona, California. His parents were Michael and Melody Martin, and he had one older brother, Sean. Michael was of African-American descent, and Melody was Caucasian, which is something that Brandon struggled with throughout his life. Brandon played baseball throughout high school, and his teammates thought he would be the next Derek Jeter. In 2011, Brandon was drafted by the Tampa Bay Rays as their first-round draft pick. He signed a contract with a nearly $1 million signing bonus. Things started off well, but when the season was over, Brandon went back to California where he rented a $6,000 a month house in Yorba Linda, which was between Los Angeles and Corona. In just four months, police were called to the house 19 times. Police records show that there were loud parties, fights with baseball bats, and blood everywhere. Many partygoers were underage and drinking. Some were seen urinating on the neighbors' properties, and Brandon was arrested twice for disturbing the peace. 
Brandon continued playing well in 2012, but when the season was over, he rented another big house, this time in the Eagle Glen Golf Club community in Corona. The drugs, parties, and reckless abandon started all over again. During spring training in 2013, Brandon fractured his thumb. After he recovered, he was sent to Kentucky to play for the Bowling Green Hot Rods. After failing three drug tests for marijuana, he was suspended for the rest of the season. At spring training in 2014, his temper had grown. He would yell profanities at the coaches and was not able to take criticism. On February 5, 2014, Brandon assaulted his brother Sean, which resulted in him breaking a finger. The Rays suspended Brandon for the rest of the season, and on March 26, 2015, they released him from his contract. Brandon's promising baseball career was over, and he went back to Corona, California, to stay with his parents. This whole time, his hatred of his father had grown. Brandon hated that he was mixed race, using skin lighteners and calling his father racial slurs. In 2014, he punched Michael multiple times in the head, but wasn't arrested because the officer didn't want an arrest to taint his career. Because that's important. Michael Martin was not doing well physically. He was diabetic and his nephew said he believed he was on dialysis. He had lost weight and wasn't able to walk. He spent his days in a wheelchair or in his living room armchair and was hardly able to move. On September 13, 2015, Brandon choked his mother, Melody, and held a pair of scissors to her neck. During his interrogation after his arrest, he described getting into an argument with Melody over cleaning his room, but he wanted to eat first and she wanted him to clean his room right away. Let me remind you that he was 21 years old at the time. He attacked her and ranted that he wouldn't be able to play baseball as long as his parents were alive. Melody didn't report the attack at the time, but news got back to other family members a few days later. On September 15th, Sean called a cousin, Michael Anderson, who I'm going to call Mike as to not mix him up with Michael Martin, and asked him to come over to their house and beat up Brandon. He didn't tell Mike at the time, but it's believed that it was because of Brandon's assault on Melody. Mike didn't agree to the beating, but he called other family members and asked them to go over to the Martin home so they could figure out what they were going to do with Brandon. Mike testified that Brandon would not come out of his room to talk to them. While there, Mike learned about the assault on Melody, so he called the Corona Police Department and reported the incident. When police arrived, Brandon admitted to choking Melody, but he claimed that it was in self-defense. Melody didn't want to press charges, so Officer Edgardo Sandoval suggested they take him to the hospital and admit him under a 5150. Why was it that you didn't arrest him? There was nobody there uh, that was uh, that wanted prosecution for any, any criminal activity. Okay. Now, were you willing to just um, uh, release him and then and leave the, the area? I didn't feel comfortable doing so. Okay. Uh, so since you, since nobody was there to, I guess, quote, press charges, end quote, um, what other options do you have to ensure uh, everyone's safety? Uh, the, based on the information uh, given so far, the only other option I saw was uh, detaining him for a, uh, placing him on a 5150 hold for a psych, eval, psych evaluation. Okay. 
uh, were the family members, uh, were they requesting a 5150 hold? No, they were not. Well, what were they requesting? There was really no no requests uh, being made that uh, that I can recall. Um, let, let me put it a different way. Were they upset that uh, that Mr. Martin was placed under a 5150 hold? Yes. And did you give them the option as to whether he could be arrested or placed in a 5150 hold? Yes, I, I told them that uh, I didn't feel comfortable leaving him there, so the only other option would be uh, criminal prosecution, but based on the behavior, he's being placed on hold. Okay. And so between those two options, they picked the, I don't know if it was they that picked the 5150 hold or you or, or what? Uh, it was it was my decision. The family didn't, uh, didn't feel it was necessary. And they weren't uh, cooperative in pressing charges for an arrest, is that correct? No, they were not. A 5150, besides being a mediocre Van Halen album, refers to the California law code for the temporary involuntary psychiatric commitment of individuals who present a danger to themselves or others due to signs of mental illness. Mike and Melody both opposed the 5150, but for different reasons. Did anybody uh, from Brandon's family object to him being uh, detained under a 5150? Uh, myself, and I I believe my, my aunt did as well. Your aunt, Melody? Yes, sir. Okay. And did that have anything to do uh, with his baseball career? Yes, sir. And explain that. So my aunt didn't want uh, something to show up on his, on his baseball record. Stay. Okay. Why did you, were you objecting under the same, for the same reasons? No, sir. Okay. Why were you objecting? Because I felt he needed to go to, to jail to keep him away from the family. The Martin family was under the impression that the mental health facility was supposed to hold Brandon for 72 hours. The law actually states that they can hold a person involuntarily for up to 72 hours. But the facility determined that he should be on mood stabilizers and that he didn't need to continue being detained. They prescribed him mood stabilizers and antidepressants and began processing his release. Melody pleaded with Riverside Mental Health to not release Brandon early, but they did anyway, and they failed to notify the family that they had provided Brandon with a bus pass to return to their home. Due to the early release of their son, Michael and Melody immediately called security company ADT to install a security system on their home as soon as possible. I'm a bit confused by the whole situation. Melody didn't want Brandon to be arrested or held for a psych evaluation because she was concerned about his baseball record. But she clearly knew he was dangerous because she wanted to get a security system installed as soon as she knew he was being released. On September 17, 2015, Barry Swanson, a contractor for ADT, arrived at the Martin home and began installing a security system. Brandon's uncle, Ricky Anderson, who was Mike's father, was also at the home making sure the Martins were okay and preparing to give Brandon an ultimatum about going to rehab. That same day, Brandon arrived at his parents' home and grabbed a black baseball bat that had his own name engraved on it. 
he approached Ricky Anderson and beat him with the baseball bat. When Barry Swanson approached Brandon and attempted to stop him, he was beaten to death with the baseball bat. Brandon then went into the living room, where his father was sitting in his chair, unable to move, swung the bat at his head, and killed him instantly. Michael's occupational therapist, Desiree Seagraves, testified to his condition. Mr. Martin was extremely debilitated. He um, usually sat in that brown chair. Um, can everybody see the brown chair? Okay. He usually sat in the brown chair. He had a hard time leaning forward because his back, his back muscles were really weak. Um, he was not able to lean, to uh, reach forward at all. Normally, he would take the one hand to to uh, lift the other hand. Okay, um, indicating that he would use his his right hand to kind to, of lift his, to lift left. his left hand to grab anything like liquid or anything um, left to the side of him. Um, and he was um, uh, wheelchair-bound? He was wheelchair-bound, um, chair-fast, chair meaning um, basically he would go from the wheelchair, somebody would transfer him into a chair, and then that's where he would stay until somebody could transfer him back into the wheelchair. Okay. So he, he himself wouldn't be able to um, use Do the his... transfer, no. Okay. Um, now, when you said in terms of in order to move his arm, um, he would have to use the left or the right arm to help move the opposite arm. That's correct. Would he be able to raise his hand above his shoulder? Not without the assistance of the other arm. Okay. So if he wanted, say, to raise one hand above his shoulder, he would have to use the other one? That's correct. And, and would he even be able to do that? Uh, he could get it about uh, shoulder height. No, that's about it. That's about it. Um, um, either arm. Now, in terms of, so he had that he had um, decreased um, movement of his limbs. That's correct. Uh -huh. um, Michael had absolutely no ability to defend himself. Ricky didn't die right away. Brandon dragged his body into the garage and left him there to die. Barry had been on the phone with Home Defender, a company contracted out by ADT setting up the new security system. Records show that the company could hear the attack happen, but didn't alert authorities. Family members would later file a lawsuit against Home Defender and ADT, stating, quote, Despite being an alarm and security company and knowing the attack was ongoing, neither ADT LLC nor Home Defender Inc. alerted authorities, end quote. They played a recording of the phone call during the trial, and you really can't tell what's going on in the background. I can certainly understand why the person on the line wouldn't have a reason to believe anything terrible is happening. 
It just sounds like he put down the phone and something is going on in the background. Ricky was also on the phone with his son, Mike, at the time of the attack. When he heard a commotion and then the line went dead, Mike raced to the Martin home and discovered the bloody scene. Brandon had taken all three men's cell phones and wallets before fleeing in Barry's work truck, a white Ford Raptor. Sergeant Paul Gamache was the first officer to arrive on the scene. He and two other officers entered the house and cleared the scene. After finding an installation order with an ADT logo on it, Sergeant Gamache called the company to try to identify Barry. Once we finished clearing the house and had medical aid come in as quickly as we could, I went outside and called my dispatch center and asked them to find a, an 800 number for me for ADT security so I could contact them. Okay. Well, while you were there, um, did you find any, um, any uh, car keys on the, or did you retrieve any wallets or car keys belonging to Mr. Swanson? No, sir. Uh, to Mr. Anderson? No, sir. Okay. Or to Mr. Martin? No, sir. Okay. Um, so dispatch were asked to um, contact ADT to see if they had somebody working there that day. I actually asked for the phone number so I could call them myself to okay. cut, cut out the middleman. Did you, did you talk to ADT? Yes, sir, I did. Okay. Um, and were they able to provide you with the information uh, at that time? No. Okay. Um, was there information that you provided them um, and they were then going to research uh, what had happened? Yes. Okay. Were you um, contacted um, at some point later by somebody called Michael Harvey? Yes, sir, I was. Okay. And um, who did Michael Harvey say he was? He said he was the son of Barry Swanson. Okay. Um, and um, were you able to get information from uh, Mr. Harvey regarding whether his dad was working uh, as a ADT security installer? Yes. Same. Um, were you given information, just yes or no, regarding um, Barry Swanson working as ADT? Yes. Sergeant Gamache eventually got a call back from Barry's son, Michael Harvey, who gave him information about the type of vehicle his father drove. When paramedics were allowed to enter, Michael and Barry were declared deceased, but Ricky was still alive. He was taken to the hospital where he survived in a coma for two days before succumbing to his injuries. Detective Brad Voorhees was actually a detective for the Sexual Assault Division at the time, but he had experience working in the Homicide Division, so he was called in to help with the investigation. Uh, was Ricky Anderson still at the scene when you arrived? No, sir. Oh, why not? I was told that he was uh, transported due to his injuries to a local hospital. And at some point, uh, did you go to the hospital or did another detective or officer go to the hospital? Another detective or an officer at, at a later time. I'm not sure who. So your role is basically uh, seen at the Winthrop address. Is that correct? Yes, sir. Uh, were the other two bodies still at the scene when you arrived? Yes, they were. Now, why was it that uh, Ricky was transported to the hospital, but, uh, but Mr. Martin and Mr. Swanson were still at the scene? They were pronounced dead at their scene, and for protocol, they don't move the bodies once they're declared dead. Once a body's declared dead, do you even have uh, jurisdiction uh, to process the body or move the body? No, sir. And where does that jurisdiction now uh, lie? Notification is made to the Riverside Coroner's Office, who will then send a representative to, to assist in the investigation. 
Inside the house, Detective Voorhees saw Michael Martin lying in a pool of blood near the living room. Barry Swanson was laying in a pool of blood near the kitchen, and there was a trail of blood leading to the garage. In the garage was a pool of blood where Ricky Anderson had been left to die. Brandon had fled in Barry's truck, and did he flee the state? Did he flee the city? Nope. He went to Carl's Jr., an American fast food joint, and had dinner. Then he spent the rest of the night in the truck. It wasn't until the next morning that the white Ford Raptor was spotted. Officer Robert Bahanez was driving an unmarked police vehicle when he saw a vehicle that matched the description of the vehicle described in a police bulletin that he had read the night before. The truck wasn't breaking any traffic laws, but he followed it while waiting on confirmation that the license plate matched their suspect. He called in for a marked vehicle to come to his location. Officer Shannon Velasco had recently come onto her shift when she got the call on the radio about the Ford Raptor being located. She caught up with Officer Bahenez and also began following the truck. It seemed that Brandon had realized that he was being followed and started to pull over. Officer Velasco turned on her lights and pulled over at an angle behind the truck to maintain a visual on the driver's side door. Officer Velasco got out of her vehicle and took cover behind her door. I yelled at him to put his hands outside the window and in case he couldn't hear me. I also used my PA system that's inside our vehicle to uh, put his hands out the window. Uh, and you said that the Raptor was no more than one car length or no less than one car length in front of your vehicle, is that correct? Yes. Was Officer Behanes also uh, giving any commands? I don't remember, but I, I would imagine he would. Okay. But as of right now, you don't recall? As of right now, I don't remember. All right. That's fine. Um, what commands are you giving to the driver? As of right now, what I remember was telling him to put his hands outside the vehicle. Okay. And did the driver uh, comply? Yes. And uh, meaning that he put both hands outside of the window? Yes. Uh, was the door... I imagine the door was still closed. Yes, of the driver's truck, yes. Yes, his driver's side door was, was closed, is that correct? Correct. So he's putting him outside the, the open window. Correct. And uh, at this point, with uh, the driver complying with your commands, what, what are you doing? What was I doing? Right. At that point, we were still waiting um, for additional units. Uh, very within minutes, I would guess, um, officer, another officer arrived on scene. Due to this being a felony stop, which is considered a high-risk stop, the officers on the scene were waiting for backup before approaching the suspect. This must have given Brandon time to have second thoughts about complying, because he pulled his hands back inside the window and sped away. Their patrol stop had just become a high-speed chase. Brandon raced through the residential neighborhoods, running stop signs. Officer Velasco's supervisor authorized her to perform a pit maneuver. The pit maneuver is a pursuit intervention technique. Um, the idea is to intentionally make contact with the suspect vehicle at a slow speed to either have the vehicle spin around um, and ideally terminate the pursuit. And how... Do you have to have any sort of training to be able to conduct a pit maneuver? Yes. Uh, what type of training uh, did you receive? 
uh, I received certification after attending Pitt School, if you will. So there's an actual school that you went to called Pitt School? I don't know the actual uh, technical name, but, but yes. The officers were able to steer Brandon into the parking lot of a local park, and Officer Velasco attempted a pit maneuver. The truck rocked back and forth, but maintained control. The truck sped out of the parking lot and onto the road where Officer Velasco attempted a second pit maneuver with the same effect. When done correctly, a pit maneuver can still be performed successfully on a bigger vehicle from a smaller vehicle, but it definitely makes it a little harder. By this time, other police vehicles had engaged in the chase. Officer Velasco attempted a third pit maneuver and was unsuccessful once again. Brandon approached an intersection, and even though the light was red, he showed no signs of slowing down. He veered into the lane of oncoming traffic, blew through the intersection, and nearly hit two cars in the opposite lane, before he swerved back into the correct lane. Once through the intersection, Officer Velasco attempted a fourth pit maneuver, which finally spun the Ford truck 90 degrees to the right. After I attempted the, uh, the last pit maneuver, where the vehicle again did turn, um, Officer Dryley was behind me. He came around to my right side, and he rammed the vehicle. Okay, and in the fashion, or basically what you see here in the photograph? Yes. So when Officer uh, Dryley uh, rammed the Raptor, the Raptor stopped? Yes. And then Officer Behini's uh, patrol vehicle stopped? I, I don't know where Officer Behini's went. His patrol vehicle stopped. Oh, Officer Dryley's I'm sorry, Dryley. Yes, his vehicle stopped. Yes, okay. Brandon immediately jumped out of the truck and ran. Officer Velasco pursued him in her vehicle until he ran into a backyard and jumped a fence. She attempted to chase him on foot, but she said he was just too fast. The chase was being tracked over the radio, and other officers were setting up a perimeter, so Officer Velasco radioed in the location. She went back to the area of the stopped truck and maintained the scene. While there, she said she saw a little white dog get out of the truck. I remember seeing a, a little white dog, cute little white dog, um, that actually jumped out, I want to say, when the, the driver jumped out of the vehicle. Um, again, I, I remained in the general area um, because at this point I'm on perimeter. Um, I could see the intersection uh, where the collision occurred, and I could see uh, that the dog more or less remained with the vehicle and kind of camped out underneath the vehicle. As other officers arrived to the area, they were able to surround the area and work their way in toward Brandon. He entered a house through a back door and was hiding inside. There was a woman home at the time, but she was unharmed. Police confirmed that he was in the house when they saw him standing in an upstairs window watching what police were doing. After seeing police gather at the front of the house, Brandon went into a back bedroom, pulled out the window screen, and jumped out of the window. Canine Officer Corporal Jeffrey Bennett was on his way to Riverside to do a demonstration, but heard the call on the radio and requested permission to respond. He arrived on scene with his canine officer, Dex, and approached the back of the house. Brandon was still laying on the ground, but all they could see as they approached was his legs. In a situation like this, the canine officer takes the lead. Having multiple people give commands can be confusing to the dog. Corporal Bennett was able to reposition himself to where he could see all of Brandon. He was laying on his back, eyes open, looking up at the sky. 
his right arm was concealed behind his body. They couldn't see if he had a weapon and didn't want gunshots. One block east was a public school that was in session. Corporal Bennett gave Brandon one chance. He yelled, quote, Show me your hands or you're going to get bitten by the police dog, end quote. Uh, Colonel Police Department, slowly show me your hands or you're going to get bit by the police dog. Okay. And did you receive any sort of response? No response or movement. Um, when you did not receive a response, what did you do? Uh, deployed the canine to apprehend Brandon Martin. Okay. Now, you said that you announced one time you're with Corona Police Department and that you have a canine. Um, please show me your hands or else you'll get bit. Is that correct? Correct. Why didn't you repeat it more and more times? We have the option. It's, it's on the handler's uh, shoulders to discern whether or not you're going to give that command or that chance in this type of situation. This isn't a normal situation where it's a residential burglar. I'm not going to give the suspect in this case any more chance to formulate a plan in his head as I give him multiple commands, do this, do that, do that. If I didn't get a command or a movement or a response the very first time and I can have a loud voice because we train this way, then I'm not going to allow him to uh, game plan us. It's, the dog's going to be deployed so I don't uh, lose that window of opportunity. And you, and you, in fact, deployed Dex. Is that correct? Correct. Dex was released, and Dex did exactly what Dex was trained to do. Dex bit Martin in his left lower shin area. And uh, did the suspect uh, respond in any way? He immediately sprung up to his feet. Okay. And what did he do at that point? He began fleeing backwards through the backyard. And as he was punching Dex multiple times with fists uh, on his head and face. Uh, you said that the suspect was going backwards, is that correct? Correct. And at the same time punching Dex uh, in the nose and face? Correct. Uh, what was Dex doing? Was he just latched on or was he biting, multi like opening and closing his mouth on biting different areas? At that point, he was holding the bite and taking that punches. Okay. Um, did, did that change? That did change. Uh, explain that. As he was being punched in the head, at one point, Brandon bent down and grabbed the dog in a bear hug, which he had the whole dog's body. His face would be facing the dog's tail now with his back towards his face and, and picked him up and this body slammed his whole weight onto the dog, smashing onto the concrete. What part of the dog hit first? Would have been his chest area. Chest area, okay. Um, did Dex respond in any way? He did. He, uh, he yelled out or, or screamed. Uh, I want to say scream, but I don't know if dogs scream. But he, he yelped out in, in pain. Okay. Uh, when you saw that, how did you respond? I responded thinking, I don't know, uh, the suspect bounced back up on his feet now. He was back up on his feet. Dex was now biting one of his inner thigh areas. He was latched on to the inner thigh. And not knowing what kind of damage the punches were doing to the dog or how much more the dog can handle, um, I used my uh, rapid containment baton and two-handed strike uh, struck him on his 
right shoulder collarbone area. Okay. After being struck by the retractable baton, Brandon finally went down, but continued to struggle until the handcuffs were on. At that point, Dex was called off. Once the handcuffs cuffs were placed on him, the dogs removed immediately. Okay, so um, so when he, before he's handcuffed, it's the dog's still doing whatever the dog does to try to contain the suspect. That is correct. He'll stay on whatever body part he's on until the handcuffs come on. Okay. And then once the handcuffs went on, what did you do to uh, now take Dex away? I physically removed the dog from, from Brandon. Okay, and, and Dex complied? Yes, he did. It turned out that Dex was okay, and he went on to serve five more years in the Corona Police Department's canine unit. He and Corporal Jeffrey Bennett retired together in April of 2020. Dex had performed over 50 arrests, 500 assisted arrests, and over 15 apprehensions. Brandon was taken to the hospital to be treated for his injuries. Eventually, lead detective Gail Gottfried was able to interview him. The audio was very poor quality, and Brandon mumbles throughout it a lot. According to Brandon, after being released from Riverside Mental Health, he took the bus to his parents' house with the intention of packing his belongings and moving out. When he arrived at the house, Michael, Ricky, and Barry had already been beaten. He said that he took the keys, not specific about whose keys, and left because, quote, I didn't have anything to do with that, end quote. When Detective Gottfried asked him which vehicle he took, he said he didn't know. So he arrived at his parents' house, found his father, uncle, and another man beaten to death, took a random vehicle, and just left? He didn't call police or any family members? Not only that, but he headed to Carl's Jr. for dinner? He explained that he tried to use credit cards from the wallets at four different gas stations before disposing of the wallets and the phones. After that, he parked somewhere and went to sleep in the truck. When he woke up the next morning, he was driving back to his parents' house to swap from Barry's truck to Ricky's truck when he got pulled over. The prosecution suggested that he wanted to switch vehicles because Barry's truck was low on fuel. Brandon said that when the police got out and pulled out their weapons, he got scared and that's why he fled. When he realized that he was surrounded in the house, he jumped out of the window in an effort to end his life. Eventually, Detective Gottfried informed him that Ricky had been on the phone with Mike at the time of the attack and he had told his son that Brandon was there. This prompted Brandon to claim that he had seen Ricky outside of the house talking on the phone prior to them being beaten. When she questioned him as to how his new story was possible, he explained that he had gone to the house, saw his uncle on the phone outside, then walked around to the side of the yard and laid on the ground for an hour or so before getting up, going back into the house, and finding the crime scene. I usually would have some sort of sarcastic remark about a ridiculous story like that, but I can't even... Brandon Martin was charged with three counts of first-degree murder, plus a number of other felonies. His lawyer claimed that mental illness was the cause of the crime, which is obviously supported by the 5150 just a few days prior, but he said his focus would be on the sentencing phase. District Attorney Mike Hestrin said that they considered Brandon's mental health, but ultimately decided to pursue the death penalty. 
The trial started on October of 2020, and the defense claimed that there was no physical evidence linking Brandon to the crime. Number one, when you look at the circumstances surrounding these events, the first thing that jumps out to you is there is no physical evidence linking Brandon Martin to these crimes. Specifically, the murder weapon, the bat, there is nothing that puts that bat in Brandon Martin's hands on that day in September 2015. There are no fingerprints. There is no DNA. There is nothing linking Brandon Martin to that bat on that day. I actually think that's weird. It's his bat, so I would expect Brandon's prints to be on it. The fact that his prints aren't on the bat suggests that he wiped the handle. When Brandon was arrested, his clothing, you can imagine it was processed. And what are they looking for? What would you look for? You don't have to be a forensic scientist. What would you look for after Brandon was arrested? Blood, right? You'd look to see, is there blood? Because we've all seen these crime scenes. We're all familiar with head injuries. What do head injuries do? They bleed. And if there's any question about that, the photos of the crime scenes answer that question. There's a significant amount of blood in that living room, in that kitchen area, and in that garage. Yet, miraculously, none of it is on the clothing of Brandon Martin. Where was Brandon Martin for the 15, 18 hours after this act? He was basically living in that truck. He told you, or I'm sorry, he told Detective Gottfried when he was interviewed that he spent the night in the truck over by where he had tossed the wallet. You know they went over that truck with a fine-tooth comb. In fact, you saw some photos of the truck. I think we had the, uh, the Carl's Jr. burrito wrapper was in there, among other things. No blood found in the truck. No physical evidence on his clothing. No physical evidence in the truck where he spent basically all of his time. This whole part is ridiculous because he claims there's no evidence because Brandon didn't have any blood on him. Then he turns around and says Brandon had 15 to 18 hours to clean himself up. There was evidence in the bathroom that he had cleaned himself up before he left the house. He could have changed his clothes, put the bloody clothes in a plastic bag, and took them with him. They probably ended up in a garbage can at a gas station. He took the family dog with him when he left. I don't think he would have wanted the white dog to become covered in blood. I think he cleaned up so people wouldn't see him covered in blood. I think he initially took Barry's truck because it would be harder for police to get a description of it. I think Brandon knew exactly what he was doing after he murdered three people. Then, after his lawyer claimed that there was no evidence against Brandon, he talked about Brandon tossing the wallet. You know, the same wallet that belonged to a dead man. The defense also says that there are no footprints at the scene that match Brandon. But Brandon himself admitted to being at the scene. Not only when he supposedly found the scene, but he admitted to going through the victim's pockets and taking their wallets and cell phones. Now, it's true that there were no fingerprints or DNA matching Brandon to the crime but there was too much circumstantial evidence to deny his guilt. The thing about circumstantial evidence is it's not about each individual piece of circumstantial evidence. It's about all of it as a whole becoming so unlikely that it's all just a big series of coincidences. Too coincidental to be a coincidence. 
And as I was listening to Mr. Jensen's closing remarks, I couldn't help think that what he's basically saying is that some unknown person went to that Winthrop address at, in the afternoon on some random Thursday. That unknown person somehow snuck into the residence without Ricky, Anderson, Barry Swanson, and Mar uh, Mr. Martin, Michael Martin, knowing that he was there. Went inside that residence and looked around, grabbed a baseball bat that just happened to have Brandon Martin's name on it. And then just happened to go up to Ricky Anderson and by surprise, this unknown person took the baseball bat and crushed in his skull over and over again. And at that time, when Ricky, I'm sorry, Barry Swanson is on the phone, goes over to try to assist or try to figure out what's going on and only to meet his demise. And then that unknown person with no motive whatsoever decides to go and find a disabled person Mr. Michael Martin, who's seated, seated in a chair with no ability to defend himself and take Brandon Martin's baseball bat and then proceed to crush in his skull as well. That random person, that unknown person, did not take any valuables from the house. That unknown person did all of this while Mr. Martin is asleep in the front yard. And that unknown person somehow leaves the residence and does not commit any other random killings that day. Too coincidental to be a coincidence. On November 4th, 2020, Brandon Martin was found guilty of three counts of premeditated murder. After a lengthy sentencing hearing, the jury chose not to sentence him to death, and he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233, or go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. The great thing about this website is that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will instantly take your browser to a Google search page. In the event the abuser is nearby, you can assure that you don't get caught trying to get help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call Mental Health America, who operate the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Be safe. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast. You can help us out by leaving us a review or rating on whatever podcast app you listen through. You can also subscribe to the show to ensure that you don't miss an episode. Also, remember that if you'd like to support the show, the easiest way is to donate a few bucks at Buy Me a Coffee or check out some of our merchandise at Teespring. You can find information on how to do that along with links to our social media at thisismonsters.com. Thanks again. You're hanging out with some friends and putting back a few drinks. A few becomes a few too many. 
As the evening comes to an end and people start to head out, you think of calling for a ride. Nah, you live nearby. You can make it home, okay? It's no big deal. What are the odds you'll get pulled over anyway? And even so, what's the worst that could happen? Your insurance goes up? You lose your license? You lose your job? You total your car? You kill someone? Everyone knows about the risks of driving drunk. The results are tragic and often deadly. However, that still doesn't stop everyone from getting behind the wheel while under the influence. That's why police officers are out there right now looking for impaired drivers on our roads to save lives. So, if you think you're okay to drive after a few drinks, think again. Play it safe and plan ahead to get a ride. It only takes one mistake to change your life or someone else's forever. Drive sober or get pulled over. Life's full of things we can't depend on. Like the Irish weather, predictably unpredictable. When you're cutting it fine, but the tractor in front is out for the day. No winner of this week's you-know-what. So much for Lucky 7. But some things you can depend on. Like in home heating. Emo, Jones Oil and Campus Oil are now Certa, Delivering the same warmth to your home now and into the future. For home heating you can depend on, see CertaIreland.ie. This Christmas, feel joy, gift joy and send them joy with the perfect gift at Arnott's. Explore an endless array of gifting that will bring joy to everyone on your list. Shop Irish at the Christmas market, support emerging new businesses with Pitch 22 or find something extra special from one of our world-class brands. Shop in-store and online at arnott's.ie. No, good boy. Keep your hat on, pet. Why? We're playing dinner at the North Pole, remember? So we need to wear our big warm coats inside. When it comes to food or heat, many families will face impossible choices this Christmas. Please support the St. Vincent de Paul annual appeal. Donate locally or at svp.ie. Thank you. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.